Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. After a few weeks of being off, I'm excited to bring you guys another episode today. Our plan is to release a few more episodes here before the start of the summer, and then while we all get busy in our offices and with our traveling and summer family vacations, we're going to take a little bit of time away from the podcast and return towards the end of summer, early fall with some more great episodes. So just kind of a heads up for our plans here for the rest of the summer. The internet seems to be exploding this week with a story over an orthodontist with a million dollars in student loans. And all of us, I think, have had a chance to hear or read this article that was published in the Wall Street Journal. It may be behind a paywall, depending on uh, your access to the story, but I'd encourage you to search this out and read it if you haven't already. We all know the story of Mike Maru, an orthodontist practicing in Utah, who went to the University of Southern California, a very expensive school for dental school and for his orthodontic training and subsequently enrolled in some of these government repayment programs and has ended up with a million dollars, over a million dollars in student loans. And it's been an interesting thing to follow the discussions that have been going on in these online forums. And uh, some of them have been among orthodontists. Some of them have been comments from the general public. And I think we can all agree that an article like this really raises more questions than it does provide answers. It's interesting to consider, you know, why Dr. Maru decided to give this interview, what his objective was, and certainly what the objective was of the person writing the article. I think that's uh, something to consider as well. But the reactions to the story in any case have been really all over the place, almost like a journalistic Rorschach test. The reactions, I think, reveal perhaps more about the reader than they do uh, about the subject. And, uh, you know, we can kind of consider this from all different angles. Some of these questions are, you know, whose fault is this? Uh, We love to assign blame. That's like our first most basic human instinct almost. Uh, What should Dr. Maru do next? You know, what, what should be his next step here? That's, we like to debate that as well. And then also really does society need to make a change? Is this kind of a canary in the coal mine situation indicative of a greater problem? And, uh, you know, I have some thoughts on this, so I I thought I'd share these with you. You know, it's interesting to think about dental schools and these orthodontic residency programs. They're really responding to market forces. And in particular, there's two market forces that are really being brought to bear on them. And the first is the high income and desirability of orthodontics as a career. And, you know, I think that drives the demand for these students and therefore increases the cost that schools are able to charge for their education. Personally, I find it hard to believe that an institution can really justify $90,000 a year in tuition. And, you know, I kind of maybe have this antiquated thought that educators, you know, should keep the needs of their students as their top priority. But I'd be naive if I didn't realize that everyone responds to financial incentives, and that includes schools and administrators. Another market force that we have, of course, is this government loan program. The fact that students can receive almost unlimited amounts of Federally funded, federally insured student loans is something that, you know, is going to be a problem. I think that these programs are well-meaning, but that they create unintended consequences. You know, not everything that is designed to help is always a good thing. It sometimes can end up hurting. 
So what are some of the solutions? I mean, I think there are things that could be done. We could reform the student loan program. We could reduce the total amounts allowed for any one student to borrow per year or in a lifetime. We could institute a provision that forces the schools to share in the pain of some of these future defaults as they come. And, uh, you know, I also think that there's some reflection that we as orthodontists have to have in this sort of situation. You know, just like these schools, all of us are trying to maximize the financial outcome for ourselves and for our families. And although I disagree with some of the provisions of the currently established program, I can't fault really anyone for taking advantage of them and for playing by the rules that have been established. So, you know, I think we can all agree that it's hard to justify a million dollars to become an orthodontist. I think that's an undesirable situation that we're finding ourselves in. I think it has bad implications for the future of our profession. And I think that's something that we don't want. But on the other hand, I think we have to keep our moralizing to a minimum and really focus here on on problem solving. One of the themes of this podcast is, at least I'm trying to make it, financial independence. You know, my vision for every listener is to get to a place where you can be a financially successful orthodontist, that you can be in control of your life and be able to deliver excellent care to your patients and to contribute to our profession and to your community. And I do believe that no matter your starting point, that you can achieve this goal. Uh, However, increasing student loan burdens mean, I think, going forward that there are going to be relative winners and losers in our profession and that the way that we play this game in terms of managing our educational opportunities, managing our practice opportunities is going to become increasingly important. So as a specialty and as a society, I think we have to figure out how to help those coming behind us to realize their dreams and their ambitions. Uh, I think this is a situation that we hopefully don't want to find ourselves in and that we want to see if we can come up with some solutions for. As you can tell, my thoughts kind of are all over the spectrum here, and I'll spare you any more of my rambling. We'll get into the excellent interview that we have today with Dr. Brent Larson, the president of the American Association of Orthodontists, who I'm thrilled to have here on the podcast after this quick message from the sponsor of this week's episode. This episode is sponsored by Braces Academy, the leader in prescriptive patient education. Braces Academy will save you time and grow your practice while educating patients in the simplest, most effective way for today's generation. Braces Academy allows you to send videos, images, and messages directly through text and email, and you have the visibility to see if patients are viewing the information that you have sent to them. Braces Academy is so easy to use that your staff can start sending out videos the day you sign up. And if you're looking for the most powerful marketing tool available to an orthodontist, you will definitely want to check out the orthodontic screening kits from Braces Academy. These targetable and trackable kits allow an orthodontist to reach patients sooner and in a more effective way. The goal is to go direct to consumer in order to redirect smiles to your office by providing a simple yet powerful at-home screening. Braces Academy and orthodontic screening kits are HIPAA compliant and patent pending. Listeners of the podcast should mention the promo code ELEVATE to receive 10 free screening kits to test in your office and a free 30-day trial of Braces Academy. Visit bracesacademy.com to learn more or give them a call at 318-828-2708. Dr. Brent Larson received his dental degree from the University of Minnesota, completed a GPR, and practiced general dentistry in the Air Force. He received his certificate and master's degree in orthodontics from the University of North Carolina and spent three years as an orthodontist in the Air Force before joining the staff and faculty at the Mayo Clinic. At Mayo, he served as the program director in orthodontics and received several Teacher of the Year awards. Dr. Larson left Mayo for full-time private practice in Rochester, Minnesota, 
where he continues to practice one day a week. Later, he returned to full-time academics as associate professor and director of orthodontics at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Larson has written many scientific articles, contributed book chapters, and lectured around the country and the world on advances in clinical orthodontics and the application of technology to improve patient care. He's a past president of the Minnesota Association of Orthodontists, the Midwestern Society of Orthodontists, and currently is serving as the president of the American Association of Orthodontists in 2018. Dr. Larson, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to be part of this endeavor. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have you here with us. And uh, maybe we'll start with this. You know, we just heard your bio and a little bit about your background. And I don't know that there are too many orthodontists that have had so many experiences and types of practices in orthodontics. What do you think has allowed you to make all these transitions? I think most people kind of have so much inertia that they find it hard to switch gears. Well, I, I think it's uh, maybe an interest I have in, in always looking for something new and different. And also it has to do with having a supportive spouse that's put up with all the changes through the years. But it's really been helpful to me now in my role as a teacher and as a professor uh, to have that varied background because I can share a lot of different practice experiences uh, with my residents and help them, you know, match their career goals to the right job for them. You're still practicing one day a week? Yeah, I still uh, make the trek to the practice, and I, that that's kind of my sanity day, you know, after spending four days a week at the university, which sometimes involves a little banging your head against bureaucracy. It's sort of refreshing to get back into the, just the private practice, work with the great staff that we have. And frankly, again, I think it makes me a better teacher when I know the issues that orthodontists are putting up with day-to-day in running a practice and treating their patients. You know, one of the themes of our podcast really has been lifestyle design or, you know, that's maybe a buzzword, but creating your ideal life. And I really love how you have been really creative. You know, you've got these choices and, and you seem to be able to choose both when faced with these. And it does seem that when we push past our initial objections to how am I going to make this work, there's often a way to achieve these things that maybe other people thought were impossible to do. Well, I think part of that is having the right attitude and, and looking at times of change as times of great opportunity. And whether that's in practice or whether it's, you know, in your life in general, I think sometimes people are afraid of change when, in fact, I think they'd be much happier if they'd embrace change and figure out how it can work to their advantage. Right. Having worked in academics and in private practice, what do you think that people who maybe just inhabit one of those worlds don't understand about the other? What, what advice would you give going both ways? Well, I think, I think there is a, a great deal that those two groups can learn from one another. And there's also a great deal that they tend not to know about what the other does. I think sometimes academics have a view that private practice is, is just an easy way out, an easy way to, to make money. When in reality, it's hard work. And as you know, the business of running a practice and managing staff and doing the marketing and budgeting and finance, you know, is a huge job. It isn't just time at the chair seeing patients. On the other hand, I think private practitioners sometimes look at academics and think, oh, you've got it easy because you can come in at nine and leave at three and you don't have to be responsible for production and so on. When in fact, the rigors of an academic life are significant and there is a tremendous amount of 
responsibility. And you're working in an environment that's very, very different. You know, in private practice, we get used to making decisions. Your staff takes care of it, and the next day it's done. At the university, working within that system, you often have to write a justification to a committee, and efforts sometimes take months, if not years, in order to uh, get completed. So if you're someone that gets easily frustrated, it's difficult to manage. But again, I think both groups can learn from the other. And I think in order to do that, they need to appreciate some of the challenges that the other side has. And that is the academics need to appreciate how difficult it is to run a practice well and efficiently. And those private practitioners need to appreciate the academics for how challenging it is to live and succeed in that world. Yeah, yeah. My dad was a university professor and, you know, he was a really research-based professor. And I always feel like we need to keep that connection strong between the clinical private practice of our specialty and the academic institutions and the new people coming through that are going to be future members. I, I think sometimes there is a disconnect there, but I would love to see that relationship be strengthened even more. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I know you lecture a little bit on clinical efficiency. Uh, I was speaking with your son, Matt, at the AAO. He's, he's an orthodontist, and he told me you have for many years been focusing on reducing treatment times in your practice and for your patients. Nowadays, it seems that, you know, when anyone mentions efficiency, there's usually a salesperson nearby trying to tie efficiency to maybe a, an expensive bracket or, a, or some fancy technology, but there certainly must be lower tech, kind of lower cost ways of improving our treatment times. And I'd love for you to maybe share some thoughts on that. Well, I think that for me, it kind of started out when I joined the staff at the Mayo Clinic, and they were kind of doing some early versions of indirect bonding. And with some of the other folks in that group, we kind of optimized that process. And so the focus was not necessarily on a better bracket or a friction-free wire. It was, let's do things right the first time. And I think the focus was, as we looked at our patients and those of the residents when I was at Mayo, you saw these cases where you did a progress panoramic film and a premolar root that looked perfect pre-treatment. You had now thrown two or three millimeters mesially, so you had to go in and move it two or three millimeters distally to get it right. And so eliminating that back and forth, I think, was really the key for me. And I like to use the, the golf analogy, and that is if you're standing on the tee and your goal is to get the ball in the hole, right? So there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can hit it into the rough on the left and then hack it out of the rough on the left to the rough on the right, hit it a few yards into the rough again, maybe hit it into the fairway and eventually get up on the green and put it into the hole. So you've gotten there, you've reached your goal, but not very efficiently. Or like a professional, you can hit the ball down the middle of the fairway get a nice approach shot to the green, two putt on a par four, and you've done it efficiently and effectively, and you've gotten to the same place much faster and with much less effort. So that was the early focus, is really trying to eliminate wrong way movements that we have to correct later. And we did that largely through indirect bonding at first. So indirect bonding kind of was the first step. Are there other things that got added to that philosophy of, of efficiency? 
Sure. So that led to some other things, and that is you want to, you know, minimize archwire changes. So for me, most times I've got an 18 slot bracket system, and I'm going to use probably a 16 round nickel titanium wire for initial alignment. I'm going to change to some intermediate wire. If it's not anything too sophisticated, just a 16 round stainless steel. And then I'm going to go into my 1622 stainless steel for general uh, arch coordination and finishing. So I'm usually only changing wires twice during treatment, again, leading to efficiency, less chair time, and so on. So that's all well and good, but all of that has to be preceded by the right treatment plan, right? And so there's easy ways to do things and hard ways to do things. And the hard way, may be right some of the time, but generally the easy predictable way is better most of the time. So having a correct diagnosis and a predictable treatment plan is really, really important. That again leads to efficiency. So again, going back to the golf analogy, if I have a short par four that I think maybe I am strong enough, I can drive the green, and in reality, there's maybe a 1% or 2% chance that I can do that. That's probably not a smart play. So the pro is going to, again, hit the ball in the fairway, the nice approach shot, whereas the person trying to take the chance is going to go for the green and try to make this amazing shot when in reality, it'll probably work against him 98% of the time. So having a predictable treatment plan, predictable mechanics, and predictable appliances, to me, is critical in terms of efficiency. How do you think orthodontists should be considering technology you know, for their practices? We've got all of these kind of things being marketed to us, and, and in some ways we're being squeezed between maybe increasing costs and falling treatment fees. And, and how does someone kind of evaluate when does it help and when does it kind of not help us? That's an interesting question and one that's in some ways very individual. Uh, when I talk and lecture about the adoption of technology, I show the typical uh, adoption curve that I'm sure you're familiar with where you have the early adopters that are getting into everything, but then you have the early majority that's waiting until it's kind of at least semi-proven, and then you have the late majority and then the laggards at the end that are still debating whether they should be bonding premolars, right? <laughs> yep. And so it's a very individual decision, and actually it's based on the personality of the orthodontist. So an orthodontist that is more of a late majority person is going to be really uncomfortable if we force them into adopting a technology early because that's not their level of comfort. They need more verification before they jump in. And so that puts them in a really uncomfortable place. So I think the adoption of new technology is very individual. And you know people, just like I know people, that are always into the latest and greatest. And they're the ones that we kind of use to, to test these uh, new technologies and try to figure out which ones really help us in terms of adding value to the treatment in terms of more efficiency or better treatment. 
and which are maybe just pretty window dressing that maybe we'll avoid. The interesting thing is if you look back at how that adoption of technology curve was first developed, at least my understanding, it was done with seed corn varieties among Iowa corn farmers. <laughs> and they got the same they got the same curve back then as we have now on adoption of CBCT or any other new technology. Some of the farmers wanted the latest and greatest seed corn variety. The others said, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's, I'm, I'm not quite comfortable with that. I'm going to use the seed corn I've used for the last 10 years, and I'm going to see in another few years whether this really pans out. So it, in some ways, it's almost human nature. And again, it's, it's not good to try to force somebody in a place where they're not comfortable being. Right. You know, I love the curve, the adoption curve with the early majority and the late majority, but that's really the curve, I think, for technologies that get successfully implemented. And certainly there are those that don't, where the curve kind of starts heading up and then it just, I don't know, drops down or, or abandons. No one continues on with that. So there certainly are technologies where that doesn't work out and it doesn't become successful and people are left making an investment in something that doesn't work for their practice. Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, if you see some variations of that curve will have what they call the chasm between the early adopters and the early majority. And that is this, this technology has to have enough momentum to cross that chasm. And as you mentioned, some don't. And I think we all can think of examples of, of technologies that looked really promising. The early adopters jumped in, initial results looked great, but then all of a sudden the costs or the the downsides or the weaknesses of the technology started to become widely known. And pretty soon people said, ah, you know, it really isn't going to make it or the company goes belly up or whatever. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of technology that never makes it past that chasm. You know, it's always fun to go to the AAO and try to play that game and guess, you know, what's going to make it and what's not. And then how much of that do we want to stake our practice on. And, and like you said, I think that's uh, personality driven. But I think that that's always an interesting thing that you know I've noticed right from the beginning of my short time in orthodontics that we love looking at all the new stuff. Yeah, I think we all play that game uh, of trying to walk through the exhibit hall and see all the, the new things and the shiny new booths and wondering, hey, you know, is that is that something that I'm going to be using routinely in five years? Or is that something I won't even remember in five years? I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at, at making that prediction necessarily. Yeah, I'm I'm probably more I'm maybe an early majority person. I'm definitely I don't like to be, you know, right there on the bleeding edge. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the AAO. You know, you just were recently elected to the presidency here of the AAO. And then I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your role in the AAO in the upcoming year. What are the priorities of the AAO? And do you have any special areas of focus that you're going to try to highlight this year? Well, first of all, I, I just want to say it's really, um, you know, an honor for me to be able to represent organized orthodontics by serving as the president of the AAO. It's something I never never aspired to, never thought I would do, but I'm certainly embracing it and want to do the best job that I can for all the orthodontists out there. In, in terms of what my special focus is, my focus is to make sure or try to make sure that we really become strategy-driven as an organization. And what I mean by that is in the past, there's been a little bit of this 
a, a little different direction sometimes depending upon who the president is and what their pet project might be or they have a certain direction. And that's a little bit like inefficient orthodontic treatment. It doesn't get us directly to the goal. So one of the exciting things for me is that during the past year, we went through this extensive, very wide, broad planning process. And it involved talking to lots of members, talking to non-members, talking to engaged members, talking to unengaged members, talking to students, talking to retirees, the whole spectrum. And then we got a representative group together and we looked at all this data and we banged this out and we came up with this one page strategy map. And I think that's really what I want to focus on during the year. And it answers a few questions for us. First of all, like any organization, we've got to have a clearly stated mission. And that's the why we exist. You know, the answer to the question why we exist. And what this group came up with that I wholeheartedly support is that the mission of the AAO is to advance our members' success through education, advocacy, and research that drive excellence in patient care. And what you'll notice is the emphasis is totally on the member and the patient. There's nothing in there about the AAO should be the greatest organization or the wealthiest organization. The AAO exists only to support their members to provide great patient care. So I think that's a wonderful place to start. But then it goes on to share about, well, what's the vision? And the vision, of course, is what's our desired state for the future? And what this states is that the desired state for the future is that all orthodontic care is provided by qualified specialists who successfully address patient needs. Again, it's focus on the member and the patient. And I think if we keep our eye on that mission and that vision will be very successful at an organization and trying to drive our strategy forward. So then a couple of important things that I also would like to share are some really broad goals and objectives that this group came up with. And we wanted to keep it simple and clear so every AAO member could understand that. And there are really three of them. One is to promote and defend our specialty. The second is to engage and delight our members. And the third is to drive transformation and innovation. And we've got various objectives that are linked to those goals. But I think that's what I would like to see the AAO focus on is really make sure that we're supporting our members, that we're doing what our members demand we do, which is help this specialty be successful well into the future. So that was a, probably a long-winded answer to your question, Lance, but I think that is really important and really my focus as I go through the next year. Yeah, I really, really liked some of the language that uh, was in there, and, and I agree that as we kind of set these goals together and work towards them, we're going to be successful. But it seems to me, and this is maybe my very uninformed perspective, but that maybe in the past, the AAO has focused on serving the needs of members with CE and with practice management, insurance, etc. But that was kind of in an environment where the de facto choice for orthodontic treatment was orthodontists. And so do you view kind of the role of the organization changing as we encounter these other entrance to the marketplace, other kind of competitive forces? Well, well, I think it may change or evolve somewhat, mostly around that goal of driving transformation and innovation. 
In other words, we know it's a changing world. It's a changing environment. There's different market competitors. And so the, the goal, I think, of the AAO is how do we help our members succeed in that? I was listening to a, a podcast that you did shortly after the meeting in D.C., and you were talking about some of the different models of practice that are being bandied about. And, you know, the satellite office of the future might be some storefront in a shopping retail area, for instance, that scans patients and drives them to your office. These sorts of different models or multi-specialty practices, all those sorts of things, I think the AAO can play a role in helping people figure out which ones may work in their particular environment and situation, and then help them figure out how they can do that successfully when, when they've made that decision. When I think about the AAO, and I think you even mentioned this in, in your goals and your vision, a lot of people want the AAO to somehow, you know, really promote the interests of their members. And it's an interesting balance. You know, I'm thinking about organizations like maybe the National Association of Realtors, which seems to be they guard their members' interests very aggressively, or I don't know, even like the beef it's what's for dinner people with the, the livestock and the meat people that are really promoting their members and kind of above perhaps other competitive forces. But, you know, also we're, as you mentioned, we're members of a profession and we have a responsibility to the public and patients. I think that's kind of an interesting balance we have to strike. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the challenge is that as orthodontists historically, We've gotten pretty used to promoting our individual brands, that is, of our own office, and driving patients to our office in that way. And that may have worked in the past, and it may still work in the future in certain areas. But I kind of think of it like, uh, like the Chicagoland Honda dealers. You know, all the Honda dealers get together and they fund the advertising in Chicago because first they want the consumer to decide they want a Honda. And then once they've made that decision, then they compete amongst each other based on their service hours or their location and other things for that particular consumer's business. And I think as orthodontists, we need to think about it a little bit the same way in that our primary goal first has to be to get consumers to say, I want to get my orthodontic work done by an orthodontic specialist. And then once they've made that decision, then we can, you know, work on getting them to our specific office, again, based on the expertise of the doctor or the location or convenience or whatever. But what we haven't been very good about as a group is working together to get the consumer first to make that decision about seeking orthodontic care from a specialist. Yeah, that does seem to be the challenge, just trying to get everyone on the same page and to cooperate, maybe like some of these other more cohesive lobbies or, or trade groups. I also think there's factors, obviously, that are outside of our control. You know, I hear people complaining about, oh, the AAO should do this or the AAO should do that. But, you know, there's things that, that obviously the, the association doesn't have any control over, like student loans or for-profit educational programs or direct-to-consumer orthodontic companies. We can't control everything. And so, you know, we kind of have to figure out this mindset, I think, between maybe not resignation, but, but accepting the reality of the situation we're in, but at the same time trying to promote the vision of orthodontics that, that we want to promote. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we should do is focus on the things we can do, uh, because there are things we can do as a group. 
and that is we can influence student loan in certain ways by advocating on the Hill in Washington for certain legislation that may allow our students to refinance loans at a better rate, for instance. It doesn't solve the problem, but it's something we can do and we hope to do. So I think really our focus is got to be on on those things that we can do. Where can we make a difference? But there also has to be that education, as you mentioned, to members about, well, what can't we do? What's an antitrust violation and, and what would get us all in trouble if we went down that road? So I think there is an education component that, again, we need to work on with some of our members. If you were to you know, be talking with someone who maybe has felt frustrated with the AAO in the past for one reason or another, and you were to make a pitch for organized orthodontics and, and why we need to pull together, what would that sound like? Well, I think it would sound like, you know, even if we're all together, we're a pretty small group. So if we're going to have any chance in being in control of our future, we have to do it together. And we have to be together, we have to have each other's back, and we have to put our our differences aside and focus on the great majority, which is what's bringing us together. And I don't know, Lance, if you had a chance to uh, attend the Excellence in Orthodontic Luncheon in D.C., but Mike Krzyzewski, the coach, basketball coach at Duke, was the speaker. And he was talking about how, as the coach of USA Basketball, he brought these teams together of all these superstars and got them to play as a team and, and win gold medals. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me is he said, when the players started saying, you know, we play for USA basketball, he said, no, 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 you don't play for USA basketball. You are USA basketball. And I think we have to convince our members the same way. You're not a member of AAO, you are AAO. So if you have some way that you can help drive this forward, we want you on the bus helping us out working together. And so I think we really need to engage and realize that the AAO is not me as president, and it's not you as a guy doing podcasts. It's all of us together doing what we can to protect and defend our profession. I think if we approach it that way, we're going to be much more successful. Yeah. And despite being a uh, diehard Carolina Tar Heels fan, I guess I have to give it to Coach K. I think that's a pretty good uh, answer and a pretty good story. So good. We're recording this interview in May and there's all these residents coming out of school and just evaluating their opportunities or, or hopefully landing somewhere uh, in a good situation. Do you have any short advice for new graduates just coming fresh out of school this month? I gave an after-dinner speech at the GORP meeting a couple of years ago, and the focus was on why orthodontics in the future is going to be even better than it is today. And I truly believe that. I, I truly believe that the students coming out of school right now are the best positioned to compete in the orthodontic world in the future. And it's the guys of my generation that are the ones that may be challenged because they don't, they don't embrace technology. They're not used to technology. They don't embrace social media. They don't embrace the digital transformation the same way that the students coming out of school are embracing it and are learning it now. 
So one of the things that's always been kind of my credo uh, at the University of Minnesota since I took over as the department chair is I want to teach residents to practice in the way they will be practicing, not in the way we have been practicing. And we really try to do that. And I think more and more programs are seeing the need to do that, to really prepare the students to practice in this new world of digital orthodontics. And as we talked about it at the beginning, see this challenge really as an opportunity for them. So I'm really excited because out of my six residents that are graduating, at the uh, in the middle of June, two of the six are starting their own practices from scratch. And they're only doing that because they have the confidence and the knowledge to know that they can compete in the in the world out there. And I think there are lots of opportunities for people that are just coming out of school. So again, a long answer to your short question, but I think the future is really bright and I would I would encourage the residents and the new practitioners to really take advantage of their unique skill set to be successful. I love that answer, actually. I think that's fantastic. So we're going to finish with our lightning round, our Elevate Express 8. I'm going to ask you eight questions and get some quick answers. How does that sound? It sounds great. Let's go for it, Lance. Good. Dr. Larson, what's your go-to treatment for full-step class twos? I'm a herps guy. Good. A reinforced banded herpst. Perfect. What's your standard retention protocol? A, a bonded three to three retainer on the on the lower bonded just to the canines under normal circumstances and a removable vacuum form retainer on top delivered same day and worn only at night from day one. Cool. Who are your role models or mentors? Well, one one has to be my dad, who's no longer with us, but he's the one who kind of taught me to be curious and to fix things and to just learn how things work and to make them better. Uh, but in the orthodontic world, my mentor and training was Bill Prophet, and I've had the opportunity over the last year to work with him on the next edition of Contemporary Orthodontics, and he continues, you know, to challenge me and and drive me forward. So I, I really have to shout out to him for everything he's done for me. And then there's been people like um, Arnie Hill, who's an orthodontist that recruited me to Mayo and really got me into organized orthodontics early on in my career. And that's frankly why I am serving as, as president today. So those are the three that I think of right off the top. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument, something you wouldn't want to practice without? My CBCT machine, my iCAT. Cool. Uh, we've been... Uh, now doing for 10 years, it'll be 10 years this summer that we've been imaging in 3D at the university, and I've been doing it almost as long in practice, and I don't think I'd want to practice without it. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Well, I, I think that maybe the, the best, you know, notwithstanding the, the family vacations, which really have to be the best, but a vacation that uh, we took to New Zealand uh, a number of years ago when I was speaking over in Australia, and we went to New Zealand with a person that I trained with, and we stood up on the top of a glacier dropped off by a helicopter looking down at Milford Sound, and I think that's the single most beautiful place on earth I've ever stood. So I'd have to go New Zealand. Great, great. What's one great book that you've read recently? Oh, I, I'm trying to remember the name. It's the latest John Sanford book. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, he ha has all these kind of murder mystery serial killer books. And they're, they're the ones that I use to just escape 
from the world <laughs> when I've had too much orthodontics and, and too much AAO. Uh, sometimes I like to just immerse myself, but I, I finished that recently and it just, it just carries you to another place. And he, he writes in a way that I really enjoy. What bracket system are you currently using in your practice? So we use kind of a modified uh, Andrews 18 slot. So there's a lot of single wing brackets on premolars and things to give more inner bracket span. And as we're talking about with efficiency, it helps avoid moving things the wrong way early. Great. And what is one area of orthodontics that you would like to learn more about yourself in 2018? Ah, uh, let's see. In 2018, I think I would like to learn more about well, and I think maybe uh, Dwayne McCamish mentioned this when he did the podcast last fall, and that is we've got a consensus group that's looking at the issue of the interaction between orthodontics, orthodontic treatment, and sleep disorders. And we're trying to figure out how we separate the science from the snake oil, and we're going to have a, a consensus statement that'll come out or a white paper, but we're also going to have the winter conference next year is going to focus on that issue. So I'm really excited to learn more about that. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in that. I, I certainly would eagerly look forward to, to some sort of uh, consensus and clarity on those issues. So, well, Dr. Larson, I just want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening, for coming on the podcast and for sharing uh, your thoughts with our listeners. It's great. I, I love that you do this. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. And I'd kind of like to do it every evening if it's okay with you. <laughs> yeah, great, great. If people want to get a hold of you or they have questions, what's the best way to reach you? Well, first of all, I want people to feel free to reach out. Probably the best way is through my AAO email, which is blarson, B-L-A-R-S-O-N, at aaortho.org. Or just call the AAO and ask them to connect with me, and I'll certainly get the message. Perfect. Well, thanks again so much. Um, I hope we get a chance to connect soon in person, and uh, have a great night. All right. Thank you, Lance. All right, guys. That's another episode in the books. I want to thank Dr. Larson for coming on the podcast and spending a little bit of his evening with us. Also, a special thanks to Braces Academy, the sponsor of today's episode. Go to bracesacademy.com to check out more about their services. Have a wonderful week and we will see you back again soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 